John chapter 9. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 7. As he, as Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And in coming to chapter 9, we come to this, really to one of the most familiar encounters in the Gospel of John, this encounter between Jesus and this man who was born blind. It's familiar to us. We may not always uh, remember every detail of this encounter, but we often remember what the man said about it, what he will say about it, about this miraculous healing. Others were pressing, pressing him for an answer as to how his sight was restored and by whom, but he didn't know all the answers. So he says in verse 25, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And that's very familiar to us. Sometimes we may not know exactly what Jesus is doing in our lives, but the change he makes is undeniable. Here in verse 5, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. A phrase, a a metaphor he first used, remember, in chapter 8, verse 12, when he emphatically declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here in chapter 9, we see an example of this, a demonstration of this. We see the effect of this light on a person who is touched by Jesus, sees Jesus, and comes to believe in Jesus. So the healing of this blind man is a sign And as with all the signs in John's gospel, it has a larger purpose, namely to inspire faith in Jesus Christ and life in his name. What we learn by the end of this chapter is that Jesus Christ really is the light of the world who gives sight to the spiritually blind and who blinds those who pridefully Refuse to see. Now, that being said, I want to try to walk through this chapter as it unfolds in real time, not jumping ahead too quickly to the end of the story. The man here, when we first meet him, is blind and he's begging, he is desperate and in desperate need of help, he is suffering. So this morning, I want to consider his predicament, his 
his pain. And I want to consider God's purpose behind it. I want us to see, I think what we learn here, among other things, I want us to see that suffering is often the sovereign yet surprising way we come to know God and experience the saving work of God. Suffering is often the sovereign yet surprising way we come to know God and experience the saving work of God. Jesus and his disciples were walking along when Jesus saw a, a man blind from birth. This is an important detail, it seems, that he was blind from birth. It seems that John wants the reader to know that this man never knew the gift of sight. Never in his lifetime had he seen anything. And it also seems that Jesus, as he was passing by, as he was going, paused upon seeing this man, even before approaching him. Undoubtedly, there were many people present. Verse 8 reveals that the man was a beggar. And beggars, as you know, typically frequent high-traffic areas. So although this man was just one person among many, Jesus seems to pay special attention to him, so much so that the disciples take note of it and begin asking Jesus specifically about this man. And on the surface, their question seems a bit odd. But upon further review, I think, I think it's a question that, that we wrestle with all the time. A question that addresses the age-old problem of pain. One that tries to understand the reason for suffering. Rabbi? Who sinned? This man? Or his parents? Who sinned, Rabbi? This man? Or his parents that he was born blind? And so there's an underlying assumption here. The disciples assume that this man's suffering must owe to someone's sin. Either his own or the sin of his parents. His blindness must be the result of someone's wrongdoing, they think. Or said another way, it must be that God is punishing this man because someone somewhere stepped out of line. seems to be their line of thinking. The notion that the man did nothing wrong never crosses their mind. The idea of him just being blind or, 
or just suffering in this way apart from sin seems so far off their radar that they never even consider the possibility. To them, sin and suffering are joined at the hip. Therefore, someone sinned and this blind man is suffering because of it. Where do we get this notion that suffering is the direct result of sin. True? In the big picture, suffering is directly related to the fall. When humanity turned from God to go its own way, when when sin entered the world, so also did suffering enter the world before the fall. All was good. Creation and the created order was just as it was intended by God, but the fall brought devastating consequences, and we have been suffering those consequences ever since. So in the big picture, sin and suffering are related in the big picture. It's even true that individuals sometimes suffer because of individual sin. So I was trying to think of an example of this and what God gave me was was the alcoholic who suffers liver failure. In many ways, they're, they're reaping the result of their sin. But not all who suffer liver failure are alcoholics. Not all have done anything wrong that warrants such disease. So the suffering of original sin is not necessarily the same as suffering for individual sin. We need to see that difference. And it's bad theology. It's bad theology to assume that a person's suffering, whether yours or someone else's, is always tied to sin. I'm currently reading through the Bible chronologically. I shared this a few weeks ago, and my reading plan currently has me. I think Bill and I are doing this together. Well, Bill's doing it, I'm doing it. And, but, but, but our reading plan currently has me in the book of Job. Job was a man who honored God. A man who wonderfully feared the Lord. A man, we're told, who turned away from evil. In fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, in the very first uh, verse of the book, it says that Job was blameless and upright. And yet Job suffered intensely. He lost his children tragically. He had great wealth, but he lost it all unexpectedly through no fault of his own. He lost his health, covered literally from head to toe with open sores. 
in miserable pain. And to make matters worse, his wife is telling him to curse God and die. And his three friends are constantly accusing him of sin. Constantly they say this wouldn't be happening if he would just stop sinning. Relentlessly they allege that he has wronged God. He has wronged God and therefore he is being rightly punished by God. Repent, Job. Repent, they thank and they plead. Admit your guilt and maybe, Job, maybe God will have mercy. Job wasn't being punished by God. The book of Job isn't about punishment at all. It's about God's sovereignty over suffering and our salvation in and through suffering. Job is an example of someone who suffered innocently. Not that he was perfect or without sin, but his suffering was not because he sinned. And it's interesting, I think, that it's the disciples who ask Jesus this question. These were men who followed Jesus. They were close to Jesus. They trusted Jesus. They knew Jesus. And by and large, they loved Jesus, yet they didn't know as much as they thought they knew. And when it came to sin and suffering, it seems they didn't love to the extent they could have loved. They subscribed to what so many in the church subscribe to today, I think. This notion of Christian, bear with me here, Christian karma. We'd never call it that, of course. We'd never call it that. But deep down, deep down, I think we basically think that we get what we deserve. What goes around comes around. So if things are going well, right? If things are going well, it's because we're close to God. We're exercising faith. We're doing what's right. And when things aren't going well at all, It must be, we assume, that we've drifted from God. That we lack faith. Or that we're outside His will. When things aren't going well, someone must be at fault. There must be some sin to pinpoint. God must be angry. And this hardship I'm facing must be God's just judgment. I remember going to New Orleans just after Katrina with some of you. Driving the city, the surrounding areas, navigating the Ninth Ward seeing the devastating effects of a Category 5 hurricane. And I remember talking to the people whose lives have been dramatically altered, people who suffered loss of house and home, loss of community, even loss of loved ones. 
We were there to serve them, to in some way ease their pain. But I also remember hearing from some in Christian circles who didn't seem to care. People who said that God was exacting judgment on the people of New Orleans for their sins. People, quite frankly, from whom I wanted to distance myself. How could you say that, I wondered. I was bothered. Though, that, that, though sometimes that may be true, sometimes God may bring judgment, but since when is that for us to decide? How could you be so uncaring, I thought, so quick to write off so many hurting people who made you judge and jury? On any given day, we're faced with the trials of life. Sometimes these are natural disasters. Sometimes they come uh, through an unexpected disease. Sometimes they're a mishap of work and you fall from a ladder and you're in the hospital for months. Sometimes it's uh, God has you in a difficult place at work or at school with difficult people who are pushing every button known to man and it is just hard. Sometimes these Hardships are self-induced. Sometimes they are. But many, perhaps most, are entirely beyond our control. They come into our lives and they threaten our well-being and how we respond to such sorrows and to those in sorrow says a lot about how we view God about what we think of God, His character, about how we relate with God. So by serving the blind man, Jesus taught something very, very important, something the man needed to know and experience firsthand, but He was also teaching the disciples something very important as well, something about God, something about God's goodness, something about God's glorious purpose in our pain. This man wasn't blind because of sin. His blindness, rather, catch this, was to be a means of grace, a way for him to experience the goodness and glory of God. Jesus says in verse 3 that the reason this man was blind was that the works of God might be displayed in him, meaning that God desired good for this man and intended to display his glory in and through this man. God desired good for this man. And 
he intended to display his glory through this man. So neither the man's sin or the sin of his parents caused his blindness. He wasn't being punished. No, according to Jesus, God had divine purpose for this man in his suffering, namely that by the recovery of his sight, he would, kn- he would know, he would know firsthand, and he would reveal the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as the account unfolds, and as we will see in subsequent weeks, he testifies to Christ, he comes to believe Christ, and he worships Christ. What I want you to hear this morning, please hear this. His blindness was not punishment for sin, not at all. His blindness was the pathway to his salvation. God wants to display his power and might. God wants to reveal his goodness and glory. God wants to make clear that he exists and is actively working in the world, in our world, even in our sorrows and suffering. God wants to be known. The trials of life are divinely appointed by him who knows all our days before even one of them comes to pass. He who grants us eternal life also plans the path by which we reach it. Nothing happens to us by chance. Nothing's outside the scope of His sovereign grace or His saving work. Even our afflictions are intended by God for our good. But listen, to grasp this reality, and I admit it is a hard reality to grasp, but to grasp this reality, we must understand that God isn't working to produce the circumstances I want necessarily. He's working even in the sorrows of life to produce the me he wants. That's huge. He isn't working to produce the circumstances I want, but to produce the me he wants. He's sovereign. And there's a correlation here between this man's suffering and the sovereignty of God. One that emphasizes God's glory and God's glorious work in our lives, not apart from suffering, but in and through it. And God Himself is not immune. Jesus Himself knew very well this relationship between our sufferings and the sovereignty of God, between suffering and glory. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting that God, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many people to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says in verse 3, in verse 4, excuse me, Jesus says in verse 4, night is coming. Night is coming. It's a reference to the cross. 
He knew what awaited him. His earthly ministry was marked by sorrow and suffering. And he knew there was more to come. He knew the cross was looming. Yet he didn't avoid it. For he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And even when on the cross, when suffering in our place, even he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father for our good, to the glory of God. So when it comes to the problem of pain, Jesus is the answer. He's our answer and our example. In Jesus, we find purpose and hope in suffering and strength to suffer well. At the cross, we see the gracious work of God on full display. So, so what if, what if we began to see suffering as a way to know and experience the glory of God firsthand? Isn't that what happened to this blind man? who sat outside the temple begging on a regular basis, begging for food and money. Probably very much like the beggars we see on our street corners. But on this day, unbeknown to him, this blind beggar was about to know and experience God. through the gracious, glorious work of Jesus Christ. What if, what if we began to see suffering as a way to know God? So Jesus spat on the ground and made mud and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went and washed and he came back seeing for the first time Time in his life he could see. Can you imagine the euphoria? Imagine his utter amazement. Imagine him staring, open-mouthed, wide-eyed at colors he'd never seen, landscapes he'd never known, people whose voices he heard but whose faces he never looked upon. I remember, I remember as a high schooler driving home from the optometrist. Actually, I think mom was driving. Driving home from the optometrist the day I picked up my first pair of glasses. First pair of glasses. And I remember being so surprised by what I had been missing. I mean, I could see the individual blades of grass on the lawn <laughs> instead of just this carpet of green. But this man didn't even know the color green. He had no frame of reference. And he may have felt grass before and tried to picture it in his mind's eye, but now to see it and to see everything else around it, can you imagine? 
I suspect his heart was racing as he was racing about trying to take it all in. This was a miracle. And the point, the point, the point is that his newfound sight meant so much more to him. Listen, because of his blindness, not in spite of it, He experienced the glory of God as never before because of His suffering, not apart from it. And He would soon experience the saving work of God because Jesus met Him in His suffering, not outside of it. And later, in verses 35 through 38, this miracle of physical sight leads to the greater miracle of spiritual sight when the eyes of this man's heart are opened. And for the first time, he sees the light of life in Christ. And he worships Christ. So where does this leave us today, this morning? What do we do with this? Well, what do we learn about God? I think from Jesus we learn that that God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is good. God works good in our lives. We learn that God has divine purpose even in suffering. That God does not ignore our suffering. That God enters our suffering even that He suffered for us. We learn that God does the miraculous. He is a God of miracles. God heals. He does sometimes immediately. Sometimes immediately, sometimes after many, many, many years, sometimes not until we arrive in glory. But God heals. We learn that God knows us and knows our needs and that He is the great initiator. This man didn't approach Jesus. Jesus approached him. So God is the great initiator and He comes to meet us in our need. He who is rich in mercy meets us with hope. He meets us with hope. And new life through Christ our Lord. And from the, uh, what do we learn about the people? Or what do we learn about people or about ourselves? Well, I think we learn that we are in need. From the blind man, we learn that we all need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God. We all need our sight restored. Even when we don't realize it or expect it, we all Need and I contend deep down we all long for God's touch, for God's work, for God to shine His light upon our lives. And we learn the importance of obedient trust, I think, or trusting obedience. Jesus did a work in this man's life, and yet he did it in a way, notice, he did it in a way that required a degree of faith. Go 
wash in the pool of Siloam. He gave him instruction, and it was upon a following that instruction that the blind man was made to see. From the disciples, we learn that our need for God doesn't end after coming to Jesus. Even to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus doesn't mean that there isn't more of Jesus to know and love. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers all the time. I think we learn that, like them, we sometimes draw wrong conclusions about people and even about God. Maybe, like them, sometimes we focus too much on sin to the neglect of grace. I think we also learn that Jesus not only invites us to work the works of God, right? He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. He not only invites us to work the works of God, but he actually expects it. I think the existence of human suffering and, this, and, and spiritual blindness is a call, perhaps a wake-up call, to work the works of God. So Jesus expects us to participate with Him in what He is doing in people's lives. We learn here, we're reminded again that just as He is the light of the world, so are we to be lights in the world. So whether you're like the blind man or the disciples this morning, I think the basic response is essentially the same. Look learn and live. God is active in your life. God has purpose, a divinely appointed purpose for your life. God is working His purpose in your life. So look to Christ. Learn from Christ. Live in Christ. Live with Christ. If you're in trial today, if you're hurting today, if you're experiencing a degree of suffering today, know that God sees you. He knows you. He knows every detail of the situation. And He comes to meet you and touch you and do good to you and in you and through you. Look, learn. And live for suffering is often this surprising 
the surprising yet sovereign way we come to know God more and experience more of his saving grace in our lives. Amen. Father, thank you for the time and your word. Impress these truths upon us again and again. For our good, oh Lord, for our good, to your glory. Amen.